George, welcome to the People Action Results podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that you're able to join us. Hello. Hello, Jeremy. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. George, why don't we start off and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us a little bit about Shields, the organization that you work for, and tell us a little bit about how you've got to where you are today. Of course. So uh, I joined Shields uh, about three years ago now. And Shields is a telecom company that helps reduce the carbon footprint and environmental impacts of network operators. So the, the telecoms industry itself is vast and it can be quite damaging to the environment because technology is constantly being replaced, constantly being um, renewed. And historically, that has not been recycled and has not been reused. It's been thrown away or destroyed. So that's where Shields and our marketplace solution comes in. Um, we help those network operators make that transition from that slightly more old school way of working into what we call a circular economy. So our platform basically enables those operators to purchase equipment that's already been used in live environments uh, that we test. And then we sell that as reused equipment for a cheaper price and Ultimately, it actually performs better because it's been tested already um, out on the field and by us. So that has a massive reduction in, in CO2 emissions for, for these operators. And there's a, there's a big scope for that as companies are now you know, more interested in their journeys to net zero, their ESG policies, their environmental impact. The, the, these manufacturers, these original manufacturers of these products and the industry could avoid something like over 13 million metrics um, tons of, of CO2 per year if we started to recycle and reuse that equipment a little bit more. So Shields is kind of the, the connector between if you're a network operator, how do we create new revenue streams? How do we help the, the planet that we live on? And how do we hit, hit our business targets for you know, roads to net zero or, or um, reducing our carbon emissions? That's effectively what Shields does. And what's your role there? Because you're HR director, so and that's a, is that that's globally as well, George as well, isn't it? Yeah. So Shields operates across um, multiple countries in Europe and over in the US as well. We we operate as a company um, across the globe, but we physically have a people presence in those countries in Europe and in the US. So in my role, um, I lead the HR department and the people team for Shields. Look after those different entities in Europe and the US. When I joined three years ago, they didn't have a solidified HR department or specific HR director. Um, so that was a little bit of a new journey for the company. Uh, they, they, they dealt with people very well and they used local uh, legal forces and things like that to, to help them over the years because it's been going for about 40 years. And I think it's come and gone, the HR department. But this was the first move by the CEO to really put back into the people and ensure that there was a team dedicated to their development and, and the talent of the business as we were kind of going around a curve of this marketplace solution really pushing us forward. So I look after that. My HR team is, I have a central team in the UK that work with me. Um, I have somebody called Michael, who's worked with me for many years. He, he um, joined after working with me for a previous company. He looks after our people and our learning and development. And I have Lorna as well, who also um, is a more general HR advisor across the business. And then there's small administration units in those 
in those particular countries that might help get things over the line. But mostly it's, just, it's us three for the, for the people team. And, and we've made great progress over the last last few years at Shield. So that, that's been a lot of fun. There's about 250 people in the organization across across those entities that we look after. Brilliant. And um, and it's great to hear that obviously uh, you know, the organization is um, is is backing up, you know, people are our greatest asset, right? And and actually trying to do something with it. And obviously the podcast is all about people action results, which is um which which as we know is is not easy. I mean, I think every most organizations understand that people are their greatest assets. Um, but actually getting really clear uh, people's strategy, which obviously have got to be turned into results, is you know that that combination is not not always that that straightforward, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a really fun challenge going into this industry because it's been a little bit different to what I had done before. I originated in hospitality, so I worked in, in management and hospitality for about eight years, um, and. That was a really eye-opening experience for me and, and gave me a lot of the experience that I had got up until this point. You know, hospitality itself is a very high turnover uh, high turnover industry for roles because the demographic of workers and employees are, you know, mostly between 16 to 25, 80% of that demographic really because people are working part-time or they, they might be studying whilst they're working. Um, so you've got a much younger generation to work with, but it, it can be a very high-pressure environment. Um, I worked for a company called Topgolf that in recent years has, has become an absolutely massive business across the globe um, worth several billion dollars and has recently been um, bought by Callaway. I, th I think they're merging together. Um, but in the UK, when I joined, they were a much smaller operation. In fact, they, they didn't make any money at all. And the team was maybe 30 people. And when I joined, I went there with no intention of, of working in, in management there, but very quickly within a year, got into leadership roles. And over the six or so years I was there, that was a massive scale-up project for Topgolf. You know, when I left, we had gone from 30 people in a site up to 250. And there were three sites in the UK, and I was helping across those different sites. So this gave me incredible opportunity to learn quickly and learn uh, and also fail fast because there was such high turnover such a massive scale up, I was able to practice so many different people elements across recruitment, L&D, engagement, and it was all very manual because the scale up was happening so quickly. Um, so that taught me a lot and allowed me to practice a lot. That high volume, I think, is missing from a lot of industries and a lot of people that work in HR because they only might do 20 interviews in five years. I did 20 interviews in a day. Um, so it allows you to refine your skills, which is why I've probably been able to progress over the years um, relatively quickly because I actually crammed a lot in because I got, I guess, quite lucky with a business that that grew exponentially. Yeah, and I know this is a big passion of yours, isn't it? Which is um, supporting um, younger people, kind of Gen Zs almost, aren't they? Um, in, in the workplace and, and and you know I know that we've we've talked prior to the to the podcast about this and and you do quite a lot of you've done some outreach as well haven't you with schools which I know this is something a, a real passion of yours but it's also 
more importantly, a, a potential missed opportunity for organisations, which is, are you supporting the Gen Z or how do you support those Gen Zs in, in our workplace? And again, prior to the, to the podcast, I was reading an article this morning about it, saying about what a big challenge that we do have. And it's a society challenge as well regarding Gen Zs. It's, you know, if you think of the pandemic losing pretty much two years of your life, um, you know, and then two years of your career. You know, that's a big chunk to take out of your career. And just interesting what your thoughts are of how do we support that younger generation more in the workplace? What, 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 what's your thoughts on that, George? For me, like you said, it, it's a really passionate topic for me because I went through that when I was going through the ranks and, and I was in, in I was at a young age pushing through and, and building a career for myself. And when I was at Top Golf, because the debt demographic was so young, I had the opportunity when I was in those management positions to have an influence on workers that were coming in for their first job when they were 16, 17, 18. And we'll come back to this, but you know, there's I feel there's a big gap between what you learn at school or higher education into actually joining employment. And there's a gap from the schooling side of things. And there's also a gap from the business side of things. So when I when I had the opportunity to work with people around that age quite a lot, you could offer a lot more guidance. And I got a real kick personally out of bringing those people along with me. And I've had the privilege of working with some fantastic success stories where people joined that business I worked in when they were 16, 17, 18 years old. And to this day, they're in senior management positions. So I had the experience of how to actually engage and translate potential from day one into activating results so that somebody could start their career, have a successful career and actually produce incredible outputs. So there was a few things that went into that. But the background for me came from working with that age demographic and recognizing that these people need support. And that's, like you said, why I have gotten into something recently called education into employment, which is I'm trying to make as much of an impact as I can by actually going to schools before these workers start um, their journeys. And try my best to fill a little bit of a gap about getting them ready for their first few years, which is the first step, because it's quite normal for people to take a few years to figure out what they want to do. And somebody might have eight years of working, but not have made any steps into building a, a large career for themselves. And that's fine. Other people have different priorities. But for those that want to kickstart their work straight away, and they want to land on their feet, I think it's it's important that we fill some of the gaps that have that have come. For example, you know, a big bugbear of mine is I used to deal with a lot of CVs um, when I worked with that demographic in hospitality that that came with that age, 16 to 25. And there's not a massive amount of work experience on those CVs. Um, you know, it's going to be focused more on education, but you would get an almost blank piece of paper where these younger people feel that they have to build a CV that might that their parents have might given them or somebody that's actually got a career. 
And what I try to do in my sessions is help them build a document that talks about them as a person, their ambitions, what they've learned from what they've what they've studied, um, why they chose those, what exactly makes them um, good at what they do and what they think they can bring to a business. And if you can fit all of that on one page, it becomes far less about the experience of what you've done that might be part time job here, part time job there and far more about the person that you are your ambitions as as an individual and what exactly it is that your personality can achieve and the, and the strengths that you bring. So that's that's one big thing that I think is important because then when employers get these, they stop looking at them as a very young person that's, you know, kind of wet around the ears and doesn't doesn't really know what they're doing and doesn't isn't going to bring much. They're going to be a fumbling mess, which is such a common misconception of somebody because their CV was so plain and, and so focused around experience. And actually, they could produce this document um, that comes in all different shapes and sizes these days, could still be a document, could be a PowerPoint, could be a, a video. Um where actually somebody can go, do you know what? This person sounds like they've got something about them, a spark, some real potential. And that might open employers' eyes a little bit more to getting in through the door, as well as building the confidence from that individual in, in the first place. So there's a big gap for me right at the start about what we can do to, to try and change the way that people are actually applying to jobs at the start. But then when they're actually in the organization, this is where I, I see a lot of failure. I see a lot of failure from organizations and um, a lot of pressures put onto HR and a lot of pressures put onto management to get this right. Because as you said, Gen, Gen Z or um, people that are, that are um, going into, into the next generation, they are going to be managed differently to how you managed somebody 30 years ago. The workforce is always changing, right? The workforce was one style in the 80s, one style in the 2000s, and a different style now. And management, people management, engagement is a fluid and constantly innovative industry that as a manager, you have to ensure that you're not just repeating what you've done over the years because it's it's not going to work with those people and this is where a lot of businesses can fall down somebody that's might have 20 years experience of building teams and engaging their staff that that experience now in 2002 is going to be not as prevalent today there are some really fundamental parts of previous experience over the years that help build foundations of what we do that you don't want to lose but ultimately the way that people are motivated the way that we engage people the way that we retain people is constantly changing and we need to adapt and we need to learn fast and people want to be managed differently this is where i think a lot of business stuff can fall down where um I think there's room for us to develop and and continue to be wide-eyed about new approaches and and accept that people don't want to be managed the way that they did before, um, especially if they're part of a younger generation that might be more technology focused or might have higher ambitions or might have um, you know the mindset of that they don't want to be told what to do all the time. They they want to achieve things themselves as as you know our human race and and our our own mindset as a society has continued to grow. It's really interesting that you say about the CVs. That kind of something that really resonated with, with what you were saying. I personally have always found that 
you know, the, the, the mantra that you hire ultimately for attitude as opposed to necessarily skill. And I think that's what you're sort of talking about with the CVs as well is that. And it's really interesting you say that because it's actually, of course, it's the person that you're hiring as opposed to the, you know, the, the, the skill and particularly a 16, 17, 18 year old who may not have any skills, but it's actually, it's the, it's the attitude you want to know are, are they, how they're going to con- contribute to, to the organization. So is that, is that kind of you, has, has that been your mantra, you know, hire for attitude? That's what I want. I can, I can help with the skills. Absolutely. And the way at Shields that we've started to adjust that is to change the way that we recruit and change the way that we interview, try to step away from that traditional one hour conversation where you cover X amount about their CV and their experience. And we've actually started developing this um, system where people have to produce a showcase for us for the first 10 minutes, which could be great examples. Some people have done paintings for us, read out poems. Some people have done presentations. Some people have cooked for us um, and it, it breaks the ice at the start of this conversation and it enables us to judge their personality a little bit more as opposed to just what their CV says. So this is one innovation that we've done at Shields that I would encourage all managers out there to start thinking about how to break up that classic traditional way of interviewing and start to recognize people's ambitions and what they want to achieve in their life. Because if somebody is empowered to achieve something, they're going to be far more inclined to produce results. They're not, they're not turning up to get paid to produce results. They're doing it because they want to. And that's the strength of, of a newer generation coming in, I think. That's a really good point. The other, the other interesting thing about, actually about CVs, as, as we're talking about them, is uh, the, whole, the whole idea of uh, neurodiversity and that somebody who is um, severely dyslexic, I'm dyslexic, um, not severely, but I'm, I'm dyslexic, um, and I know that Virgin, uh, I think there's pretty much the Virgin group don't use CVs anymore in terms of looking at necessarily qualifications. So they do much more of a, um, a personality led, uh, interview yeah. because, well, Richard Branson is probably famously the most famous dyslexic, um, one of the you know best entrepreneurs in the world. And I think the whole point is, is, is hiring again for attitude as opposed to hiring for what would have been traditionally, which school did you go to, which uni did you go to, what, what are your qualifications, which again, all good. There's nothing to say that that is wrong, but it's not the whole person, is it? Which I think is really what you're, you're, you're talking about. Absolutely. We, I teach a lot about cognitive diversity and the importance of this. There's a, a really great story of um, the CIA in the 70s hiring from the same background. You would have a, a white male from X school with um, X experience and they would, that's how they would hire and that's how they would build. And in your problem square of life, Imagine this square with every problem and, and every solution possible. You would have, you know, Ben, the, that guy with a little circle in the corner of that massive square with everything, with all of his experience and all of his background. And that's they're the solutions that he can provide. If you hired another hundred of him, you would have a bunch of circles covering one corner of this big rectangle of solutions. Whilst actually, like you talked about, the diversity and the cognitive diversity of different individuals that's made up by different countries of origin, different religions, different backgrounds, different schooling, 
is actually going to produce far more circles in that square and ultimately provide a more well-rounded team. And that, I think, is a really positive thing that I'm seeing in businesses, but it can be quickly forgotten. And we should encourage people to understand that all of these different personalities bring different strengths. And if you can build a team around that, you're going to be set up for whatever's thrown at you rather than a bunch of people scratching their heads because they're all thinking the same thing. I couldn't agree with you more. I, 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 I really do think it's so critical. I think neurodiversity actually is, is the key. It's, it's, we all think in different ways and it's not necessarily a gender thing. I, you know, I, men and women think in, in different ways. That is a good thing. That's a good thing for the, for an organization or in the workplace. Um, it's interesting, actually, you, you talk about, see, I, I know that GCHQ now have a positive um, uh, recruitment for um, people that are, have, you know, are on, on the autistic spectrum because they see it as their superpower and they see it as um, people with that kind of way of thinking are absolutely ideally suited for some of the tasks and the skills and some of the roles that that GTHQ need, rather than saying, as you said, you know, the, the classic, well, I've, you know, they've got to recruit them from a particular university and they've got to look like this. It's it's not about that. It's about it's about the way you think, right? Absolutely. It's about uh, about the way that you think. And I think you know, coming back to what we spoke about in regards to how to activate and engage new workforces and and the way that we work, when you start to have that open mind to bringing in the right people that want to succeed, regardless of, of their background or the way that they think, if they want to succeed, this is one of the most powerful tools, I think, as, as a leader that you can fill your organization with. When, when you're building that culture for me and the cultures that I've tried to be involved in, there are three major words for me. And that is that if you bring in the right person, there are three things that will, that will allow them to achieve the greatest results. And for me, that is accountability, empowerment and feedback. You empower somebody with, by setting goals you know, and you you tell them exactly what they need to achieve, what the end result needs to look like, and you empower them to, to, to do that. Then throughout the process, you hold them accountable. You hold them accountable to the results that they're producing. And we, we start to step away from micromanagement. We don't tell them how to do it, where they need to be sat, where um, the hours that they need to work or how they need to accomplish something. You give them guidelines, you give them the goal, then throughout the process, you hold them accountable to their results. And then the last word was feedback. At the end, you're consistently giving them feedback, coaching them, never missing an opportunity to coach. And at the end of the day, giving them feedback as to how well they have done towards the goal that you set, areas that they need to improve, or maybe they've absolutely smashed it and we give good praise and reward for that individual. And then you repeat that over and over again. And it becomes less about here's a black and white A to Z manual slammed on the desk about how you do your job. And if you don't do it, I'm going to be on your back every second and moving more towards I've hired you because I believe in you. This is what I need you to do. Go and do it. I'll, I'll hold you accountable throughout throughout the time. If I don't see progress, I'm going to ask you why. And then at the end, I'll constantly be giving you feedback as to the things that I loved about your process, the things I think you could improve, and ultimately how well you've done. 
that's been an, a a really powerful tool for me over the years and i continue yeah. to use that today it's um uh well yeah and thank you for that because that's exactly what we do at black isle it's pretty much you know word for word of what you what you said the programs that we deliver or have a framework based around pretty much what you've said which is um we break down big goals into everyday actions but what we then do is is we coach people and we support people in doing that because they want to do it this is the big difference you can't change anybody it's because they want to do it and it's just got me thinking as well that your three words are very similar to the the, the three intrinsic drivers that Dan um, Pink talks about in his book, uh, Drive, which is all about why are people engaged. And three intrinsic drivers are mastery, which is basically I'm learning, which is pretty much your, you know, when you said, um, you know, I believe in you. Mastery is, you know, I want you to go and do this 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 job, George. You know, I, I don't know whether you can do it or not, but I believe in you, right? So I believe in you. Mastery, I'm learning purpose which is do you buy into the to the organization what is my purpose what's my job what am i trying to do and then autonomy so purpose autonomy and mastery are the three intrinsic drivers you know we always think the extrinsic drivers are the most important salary benefits and stuff of course they're not it's the, the three intrinsic drivers are and what that really what that really boils down to is i believe in you here's a job i don't know whether or not you can do you'll learn how to do it you know, I give you the accountability, the end goal of what I want you to achieve. And by the way, you have a total autonomy to work it out. So in, in our jobs, that is, I believe in you. Go and do this job. I'm, I've got your back. And if you look back in your career, most people can go back in their career and say, I at my best was when that happened, when the three intrinsic drivers are actually in force. Yeah, I think that's so, so interesting because when I, I joined a company before Shields and this comes into maybe slightly micromanagement, but also if you're a passionate coach and leader, you can very easily fall into a bubble of making sure that nobody ever slips up. You want to coach them every second of the day. And you, you kind of wrap them in cotton wool and you, you never allow them to make mistakes. Um and when I look back at my own career, I had a really fantastic manager named Ricky who helped me for many years, but he left. And that was quite early on in my career. And since then, I've had different managers come in and, and have impacts, but I've always had the, the mindset of I'm going to basically try to manage myself. And I made so many mistakes, you know, so many mistakes, said the wrong things, acted the wrong way, let my emotions get the better of me. And if I'd have had a, a manager that was always on my back, maybe I, I wouldn't have made those mistakes and I wouldn't have learned from it. So when I joined a business, um, I maybe was a little bit too um, on top of that. And my leadership style was to constantly help people. But what I found was that people didn't grow enough to help themselves. And they would constantly be calling you and they need your solutions. They need your guidance because you haven't allowed them to go and do it themselves. I always say that a good leader is you know, you're only as good as your day off, right? A good leader doesn't hold things up and tell everybody what to do and point everybody in the right directions all the time. A good leader empowers people to run your business, run your operation on your project effectively without your daily input. You should be able to take a two-week holiday as a great leader and things be working very, very well. That for me is a better sign of leadership than if the roof starts caving in when you step away. I've always tried to make myself redundant by empowering those below me and taking as much as my responsibility as possible so that they become the best versions of themselves. And actually, that's not 
I'm not afraid of that. They're not going to overtake me. I mean, they might. Uh, some guys that I've, that I've taught are, are probably much better than I am. But ultimately, if I can prove that I do that in the eyes of an organization or my boss, I'm going to continue to climb. I'm going to have more space for me to focus on what I want to do in my career and take on more responsibility. So I guess don't be afraid to empower people. Don't be afraid to let them make mistakes because they, they, if you trust them and they're good people, they'll produce results. And it's a bumpy road. Go side to side in life, but they're, they're going to they're produce for you. Try not to micromanage them too much, even if you're trying to help. Yeah, it's a it's really good advice. Yeah, I like, I like the um, you're only as good as your day off. I, I like that analogy. That's that's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, just kind of moving on, a couple more questions for you um, before we close off today is um, I know that onboarding is something that you're you're really um, passionate about as well, and the and the fact that the stats behind getting onboarding wrong is just really scary actually and i think probably everybody listening to this uh, to the show will will have had really good onboarding experiences and pretty rubbish ones and and the latter really does make a big difference in terms of buying into purpose actually purpose of the organization so tell, tell us a little bit about your thoughts yeah. on on onboarding and, and getting it right and wrong well, for me, I think that onboarding and induction is one of the most important things you can do to set somebody up in their career. I probably attribute to 60 or 70% of somebody's success by the way that you start your management with them. And when I say onboarding and induction, effectively, I mean, my key word here is setting expectation. This is the fundamental philosophy that if you follow and you do really well, you will empower people, you will give them goals, and you will be able to hold them accountable and give them feedback without challenge and resistance. When I first started doing inductions, I was very young and there wasn't a set program. The business didn't have a a, um, step-by-step guide or a process at all. What I used to do was when I hired somebody new, they used to sit with me for two hours and I would basically tell them exactly what I want from them, what I don't want to see, Um, and basically list off all of the things that used to annoy me from other people in the team. And I set that expectation from them from day one. And surprise, surprise, they didn't do it. And if they did, and they made a mistake, I then gave myself the platform to put my arm around them and say, hey, do you remember we talked about this? And they'll go, yeah. And you say, listen, I I picked up on you doing it a couple of times. You know, keep your eye on the prize and, and let's focus and move forward. But we spoke about this at the start. I need you to improve it. You're giving yourself the foundation to give fantastic feedback without feeling awkward about it. It's less scary because you've already said it. So this whole induction and onboarding thing is huge because you set expectation. As a manager, you set expectation. As a business, you set expectation with how you work, what the culture is, you know, how you how you lay down the rules as a business and what your aims and ambitions are. Um, and I think those philosophies for me, very high level, are the key things to getting that right, setting expectation from the start. Then you can become far more detailed, right? And you can produce really fantastic onboarding plans. As she we have a 12-week program that's made up of preparation before day one, setting expectation, then training programs with good products that we use that enable you to track your learning, track your training, have competency checklists, but also assigning mini goals throughout that, constant checkbacks with your manager and constant opportunity for feedback. If you can nail those things, preparation, setting expectation, a good training plan, consistent goals, 
and never missing the opportunity to give feedback, that person will feel valued, they will feel cared for, and they will feel empowered to achieve what you brought them on to do. And that's where a lot of businesses fall down. They say, hey, Jeremy, here's your laptop. Can you crack on? And some people, some people swim with that, for sure. But you're going to increase your opportunity for people to walk out, take another job, you know, try and get a higher salary somewhere else. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to go through that process again. So if you get those things right, for me, you're one step closer to building a great team. Brilliant. And then last couple of questions before we close out. Um, I really enjoyed the, the, the conversation um, today, George. It's been really good. And last couple of questions. So tell us, a, you know, best leaders or best leader traits that you've worked for. So you probably work for some incredible leaders and you probably work for some less incredible leaders as we all have. What, what, what are the things that, you know, you look back at and you think, yeah, I'd really like to do a little bit more of that. The, the, these are the things that, you know, that really stand out. Well, give us a couple of examples. I think in everybody's career, like you said, you, you work with people that you really value what they do. And then you also work with people where it's very easy to think to yourself, oh, I don't like what they do. Oh, I'm really frustrated by that. And that's fine. Everybody falls into those patterns. But what you can learn from somebody else's leadership that you don't necessarily agree from is maybe how to build yourself and exactly what you want to look like. So if you work with a leader that's poor and, and maybe they have examples of micromanagement or inconsistency in values or, or whatever that list might be, you can learn a lot from that and start to shape yourself about the things that you don't want to do. So actually, if I just worked with perfect people all of the time, I probably would be half half the, the leader I am today because I haven't seen what bad leadership actually, what that can cause and the causality of those actions. Um, I think a good way to answer your question is, in my mind, there's a real difference between being a good manager and leader and a good boss. And I, I say this quite a lot to people because for me, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I've worked with people uh, uh, in the past that I dated somebody once that had a really good boss because this boss allowed them to leave early. They never really checked up on them. They could wiggle their mouse when they worked from home and nothing really happened. They never got given any feedback and they were never really they were never really uh, showcased for the rest of the organization. But they felt they had a great boss because they always agreed with them. They said yes to everything they wanted. And effectively, they did as little work as they could and still got paid for it. And in their mind, that was a win. That was a great boss to have. And they might be things that people start to think are what make great bosses to be the person that does that and to, and to make people that happy. But I always challenge that and say that that is not a good manager. That's a good boss because effectively you're getting what you want and you work for somebody that makes you happy because you've gotten what you want. But a good manager challenges you every day, gives feedback doesn't let you get away with everything you want, sets a fantastic example and profiles you for the business. They don't take your wins. They, they showcase your wins as yours and they take credit for, for empowering you to do that. But ultimately, you were the workforce that did it. Um, and I think that's the, a, a big difference between bosses and managers. You know, you could be very well liked and still be failing as a manager. Um, and I think that's that's really important because people get that confused in my mind. They might not like somebody, so they think they're a bad manager, but actually they could be producing fantastic results because of the way that they're managing you. So I always try to keep that in mind. Boss, manager, liked, not liked, what exactly it is that you want to achieve and I guess as, as a leader myself, 
how I want people to see me, but ultimately how I want that person to have progressed over the years that they worked for me. Because if they're exactly the same as I picked them up, I'd, I'd failed in my Very mind. Very good. Um, I hope and I then my la- last question <laughs> is, what's, what's the best piece of advice that you've been given or what's the kind of one principle that you, you, you try to, to work to in, 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 your, in your work life and also in your, in your home life? Yeah, I, I like the in the work what we spoke about before about you know always be, or, or, um, always being as good as your day off and and allowing your mentality to be built from that. But also for an individual, for somebody like myself who has been had some really great opportunities in my career, and that's been great. But I didn't get the role I'm in today by just winning the lottery. You know, it wasn't given to me. I still had to work. And something that I I take away is that you make your own luck. And I think there was a famous golfer that said, um, it's funny, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, and I, I love that because there are opportunities in life. When I joined Top Golf, I joined at a time where it was going to rise. Now, who knows if it would have risen as high with or without me? Who knows? Who cares? I joined, I took the opportunity and I, my, and I made my own luck out of that situation. I then left and joined other businesses and, and took risks and made sure that that I got out of it what I wanted to. Um, and I continue to work hard through that process. I didn't let opportunity just carry me. You've got to, you've got to go out there and do it yourself. I always say to my teams, um, if you want to actually be the best, you've got to go out and be the best. You can't, that doesn't get given to you. You get little snippets of luck, but most of the time you make it yourself. So that's what I try to follow by. Make your own luck because keep working hard and you'll find you're much luckier than someone that doesn't. Brilliant. George, look, I've really enjoyed the uh, conversation. So thanks so much indeed for coming on the uh, People Action Results uh, podcast. It's been been a really good good, uh, half an hour. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's It's been really great, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to episode number six of the People Action Results podcast. For more information, please visit blackislegroup.com and follow us on our LinkedIn page, the People Action Results podcast. This is Jeremy Campbell from the Black Isle Group. Thanks for joining us and I really look forward to catching up next time.